Good morning. Good to see you here today. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn together to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. Back in the late 1980s, early 90s, uh, about the time I was in seminary, servant leadership was the, was the hot topic in Christian circles. Christian writers were writing about it. Christian leaders were speaking about it. Seminary professors were teaching it. It was all about servant leadership. And uh, all of us preacher boys put it on our resumes. Oh yeah, I believe in the servant leader concept of ministry. In other words, I'm, I'm pretty much just like Jesus. You know, It was all about servant leadership. It was such a hot topic, it actually made inroads into the secular business community. And there were corporate seminars and CEOs and business manager types who started thinking of themselves as servant leaders, which basically meant they handed out hot dogs and drinks at the annual corporate picnic, but so much for servant leader. Well, this morning, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the servant leader. In fact, to borrow a chapter title from Warren Wiersbe, he is the sovereign servant. And in our text this morning, we're going to see him display that true servant leadership in an extraordinary way. Not in a gimmick, not in a publicity stunt, not in an empty gesture. He's not going to hand out hot dogs. He's going to do something remarkable. Namely, he's going to serve those who are under him. He's going to wash the disciples' feet. So that's our text this morning. That's where we're headed. Before we get into our text, though, let's, let's get a handle on the context of our text. Where are we in the Gospel of John? Because this informs how we understand this passage. We have turned a corner. In our journey through John, we've turned a corner today. We saw that chapters 1 through 12, that comprised the book of signs. And the main thrust of the first 12 chapters are the signs that point to Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of God. And that's, that's the whole thrust. That's the point of the first 12 chapters. Now, with chapter 13, through the rest of the book, we have what is called the book of glory, the book of exaltation. Ultimately, the climax of this second half of the gospel is that Christ will be lifted up. He'll be exalted. He'll be glorified on the cross of Calvary and by means of his resurrection. So today we turn a corner and now we go from his public ministry to one last private discourse. We heard last week his last sermon, his last public address, the last time he, he preached to the crowd. Today, and over the next several chapters, chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is going to focus on his disciples privately. This is, pri this is a private meeting, and Jesus has one last opportunity to pour into his disciples and to help get them ready for what is to come, namely his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and life in ministry without his physical presence, their ministry after his earthly ministry, preparing them for his departure. So that's the next few chapters. And then in chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer. And then we have the passion narrative and the resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. So that's where we're headed. So today we turn that corner and now Jesus is in the upper room and this is a private meeting, private teaching uh, for him and his disciples. So let's take a look. John chapter 13 and verse 1. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. We'll stop there for right now. So if you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. Let's start, first of all, with the introduction. And these first four verses, John masterfully introduces not only what's about to happen, Jesus washing their feet, but also this whole discourse and really the book of exaltation. But here he introduces uh, this, this discourse and what is about to take place. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus knows that his hour has come. We've seen that before. In the Gospel of John, his hour is the hour of his death, the hour of the cross, the hour of his exaltation, mainly through the cross of Christ, through the cross of Calvary. That is hour. And Jesus knows that his hour has come. And we're just reminded that the cross did not take Jesus by surprise. He's not a victim of circumstances. He didn't misread the room. He didn't miscalculate. He, he, knew, he came for this hour. He came for the cross. And he knows his hour has come. He knows here it is. It is time. He knows this. He knows that, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Not only in his death, but mainly in his ascension. When he ascends, he will go back to the Father and he'll be seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He knows this. And by the way, that's a preview of death for the believer. Uh, when a believer dies, you depart this world and go be with the Father. That's another sermon for another day. But Jesus knowing that his hour has come, that he would depart out of this world with the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that is really going to be the theme of these next chapters. He loved them to the end. In the first 12 chapters, the focus, the, the emphasis of the first 12 are light and life. He is the light of the world. And uh, in him is life. And the life was the uh, it was the light of men. So it, we have life and light in the first chapters. Now here in, these, in the next book, the book of glory, love is the thing. It's going to be love, I mean, from here on out, especially here in this, in this upper room discourse. He loved his disciples. He loved those who were his in this world to the uttermost, to the end. That's, that's a matter of degree. It can also be to a chronological end. He loved them to the nth degree. He loved them all the way to the cross. He loved them to death. He loved them to the uttermost. And he's going to demonstrate that love here in short order. In verse 2, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So we know. Now John's already given us some sneak peeks. We already know Judas is going to betray Jesus. So we kind of know that's coming. So now that subplot is beginning to, to, uh, to evolve. And we're going to see Judas betray the Lord Jesus. We'll come back to Judas another time. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God. 
Jesus knows his origin and his destiny. He knows who he is and what he is. He knows he's the sent one, that the Father sent the Son into the world. So he came from the Father. He's going back to the Father. And he knows that all things have been put into his hands. He says this elsewhere in the, in the Gospels as well. All things, that speaks of authority. That God the Father has entrusted all authority to the Son. The authority to give life. The authority of judgment. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in the Great Commission, Jesus will say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's, that's about all the authority there is. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The authority to reign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Knowing who he is, what he is, where he's from, where he's going, that all authority has been placed into his hands, Jesus does something astounding, unexpected, remarkable, surprising. He takes off his outer garments, he gets undressed, and puts on the, the uniform of a slave. He, he dons the outfit, the working tools of a slave. He girded himself with a towel, and he prepares to do what a slave would do, not just a servant. He, began, he dresses as a slave, dresses down as a slave, and does a slave's task. And he washes the disciples' feet. Knowing who he is, where he's from, knowing what he is, he does this. Now, let's stop here for a moment, and we need to get caught up to speed on this whole idea of washing feet, foot washing. For us, this is weird. This is not our culture. Aren't you glad? I personally, I'm very glad. I, you don't need to be washing my feet, and I have no desire to wash your feet, just being honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we don't do this in our culture. We wear socks and shoes everywhere we go. So this is weird. This, this whole idea of washing each other's feet, that's kind of off-putting. In that culture, though, this, this is everyday stuff. This is not weird. This is daily life. Most folks would go barefoot or wear open-toed sandals in a dry and dusty land where there is no water. And you go barefoot in a dry and dusty land, it's a matter of course. Your feet are going to get caked with dirt and dust and grime. Your feet are going to get some kind of nasty. So you would wash your feet. I mean, this is everyday stuff. This is just daily hygiene. This is normal. You know, when your mama used to tell you, get in there and wash your hands and wash your face. Well, here your mama would say, get in there and wash those dirty feet. <laughs> That's what your mama would say. It's just daily hygiene. You go wash your feet. Washing your feet would be a, re a religious ritual as well. In, in many circles, in certain circumstances, you'd wash your hands, wash your feet before you go into worship. I mean, it's just part of being clean before God. Wash your hands, wash your feet. Religious practice. It was an act of hospitality. When you have guests over, you offer the refreshment of having their feet washed. Now, I'd rather have a glass of tea or a cup of coffee myself, but in that culture, this is an expression of hospitality. You come into my house, and I will offer to have your feet washed. Hopefully, I'll have servants who can do that, but you'll, you'll, you'll have your feet washed. It's just hospitality. Or you might wash someone else's feet as an act of devotion. But now, here's the deal breaker. Here's the thing you need to know. Washing someone else's feet was a menial task, and it is loaded with social status implications. Something we don't really get in our culture. We don't get the foot washing thing, period. 
let alone the whole social status thing. But washing someone else's feet, again, wash your feet all day, that's, that's normal. But washing someone else's feet was a menial task. This is demeaning. This is, this is low-level stuff. It's a menial task, and it is rife with social status implications, social meaning. For example, here's what this means. Here's your outline. Um, one might, you might wash the feet of someone who has a higher social status as an act of devotion. You might, not, not always, but you might wash the feet of someone with a higher social status as an expression of love or service or devotion. A wife might wash her husband's feet as an expression of love and service and devotion to her husband. A child might wash his or her parents' feet as an expression of love and service and devotion. A student might wash his teacher's feet as an expression of love and service and devotion. But even then, a, a teacher would not require this. Now, rabbis, rabbi teacher, mentors, these rabbis, they, they could require of their disciples all kinds of manual and menial labor. I mean, that's, that's just part of being a disciple, part of being a student. You follow your teacher, teacher gets to tell you what to do. However, even a rabbi could not demand his disciples to wash his feet. That's just, no, that's, that's a bridge too far. I mean, that's just, no, you don't go there. That's just too far. You might, might wash the feet of a social equal as an act of hospitality. Now, you might wash the feet of a social superior as, as an act of devotion. You might wash the feet of a social equal as an act of hospitality. If you came to my house, I would offer to have your feet washed, you know, just like a cup of coffee, glass of tea. It's a refreshment. It's a welcome. Now, hopefully I have servants to do that. If I have Gentile servants, the Gentile servants will do it before Jewish servants or Jewish slaves. Again, this is low-level stuff. The lowest of the low do this kind of a thing. It's a menial task. So if I have Gentile servants, they'll do it. If I don't have Gentile servants, my Jewish servants or slaves, they'll do it. If I don't have any servants or slaves, if you and I both understand we're equals, I mean, we're pals. I'm not more or better than you. You're not more or better than me. We're just, we're, we're compadres. And as a compadre, welcoming you into my house, I might, might, might not wash your feet. I might just give you something so you can wash your own feet, but we're equals, and everybody knows it. You would never, never wash the feet of a subordinate, someone who has lower social standing, someone who has less rank, less money, less status. You never wash the feet of someone who is under you in society. That, just, that is not going to happen. So that's, that's the scene. Now, you take all that and watch what happens. So here in, in John 13, the, the foot washing is not unusual. Somebody is washing someone else's feet. That's every day. Big deal. I mean, happens all the time. What is mind-blowing is that Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. That's completely unexpected. I mean, that blew their socks off. <laughs> See what I did there? Socks. <laughs> <laughs> 
They're washing their feet. They didn't wear socks. Get that? This would blow their minds. They would have never expected Jesus to wash their feet. Now, they might have washed his feet. They should be washing his feet. I'm sure they would have washed the Lord's feet had they been asked. Apparently, nobody's volunteering. On their best day and on their best behavior, the disciples might wash one another's feet if they weren't so preoccupied with their own status with each other. They're all tore up about that. In fact, Luke tells us that on this same event, this very night, in this setting, there arose a dispute among the disciples as to which one should be considered the greatest. So even in this setting, hours away from the crucifixion, the disciples are, are trying to establish a pecking order. I'm more important than you. I have superiority over you. I'm, 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 I'm more than you are. I mean, already. And that's not the first and that's not the last time they'll have that kind of discussion. They're all about that. But never in a million years would they expect Jesus to wash their feet. That is, Jesus is, I mean, he's blowing their minds. He is reversing the whole social order. He is obliterating social norms and customs. This is, this is out of the realm. This is just beyond, beyond the pale. And that leads us to this strained conversation between Jesus and Peter. When the Lord comes to Peter, Peter says to him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the, and the pronouns there are emphatic and in odd order. It's out of order. Lord, you, my feet do you wash? Lord, you are washing my feet? And then there's this super strong negative, no, never. No, never. You, will, you won't never wash my feet till eternity. I mean, it's almost like a, an oath. You will never wash my feet forever. And then Jesus says, well, what I do now, you will understand later. Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then, so, so Peter goes 100 miles an hour in the other direction. Well, Lord, if that's the case, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands, wash my head, <laughs> give me a bath. And Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you are clean. For he knew who would, be, who would betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Well, when Peter says, Lord, you... No, never. You, you, you won't ever wash my feet forever. That sounds like humility, but it's actually pride. <laughs> he's so humble, he won't let the Lord wash his feet, but he's so humble, he doesn't mind telling the Lord what he can and can't do. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. This is really a prideful refusal. You know, sometimes it takes more humility to accept help than to offer help. Sometimes it takes more, it's an act of humility to receive ministry as well as give ministry. Pride says, I don't need your help. I can take care of my own business. Thank you very much. Humility says, thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for offering to help. Thank you for helping me. That's true humility. Well, there's a lot going on. Let's take a look. There's more here than meets the eye. First of all, we have a loving demonstration. We have a loving demonstration. Jesus is expressing this love. Remember verse 1. He loved those who were his own in the world to the uttermost, to the nth degree, to the very end. Case in point. Here's a display of that love. He does something extraordinary, unexpected, practically inappropriate. He serves his disciples. 
He does what a slave would do for his disciples. He washes their feet. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Here's an example of that too. John has already told us in verse 2, the devil's already put into the heart of Judas to betray him. And then he tells us, Jesus knows not all of you are clean because he knows who's going to betray him. Judas is in the bunch. And Jesus washes Judas's feet too. An act of love and service to the very one who will betray him to death as well. He loves his enemies. And remember, Jesus knew from the beginning who and what Judas was and who and what, uh, what Judas would do. So that didn't surprise him either. So we have this loving demonstration. More importantly, though, we have a theological illustration. We have a theological illustration. Look again in verse 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter said, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you. For he knew, he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. That conversation and the idea of, of Judas being in the group and he's going to betray and he's not clean. Verses 8 through 11 tell us that there's more going on here than just loving his disciples. There's more going on here than just an act of service as well. There is a theological application. And we are in this redemptive context as well. I mean, here in the book of glory, in the redemptive context, and then verses 8 through 11 tells us that Jesus is communicating a deeper truth. There's, there's, some, there's another illustration or application going on. There's a theological illustration. Namely, we have a, a picture of justification and sanctification. Now, those are big church words we don't use in everyday life, but here's, here's, here's the short version. Justification is, is, is God declaring you just as if you had never sinned. That's justification. That's salvation. When you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you receive by faith his gift of eternal life, God justifies you. Part of that process of justification, salvation, God forgives your sins. You are washed with the, with the blood of Christ, with the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You are washed clean over and, <laughs> from head to toe, in and out. The, the Bible says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He forgives us all our transgressions. That's justification. God makes you righteous. He washes away the filth and the guilt of your sin and makes you righteous with the righteousness of Christ, just as if you'd never sinned in the first place. That's justification in a nutshell. So here in our illustration, justification, that is your once and for all cleansing. That's the once and for all. That's your spiritual bath. When you get saved, when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you get a spiritual bath head to toe. You are cleaned all over, in and out. God makes you clean and righteous with the righteousness of Christ. The blood of his son forgives us of all, cleanses us of all our sin. But then we have sanctification. Sanctification, in, a, in, a, in the broader sense, is this process whereby God conforms us to the image of his son. Where he takes a Christian and he grows you in Christ, matures you in Christ, 
and conforms you to be more and more like Christ. That's this lifelong process of sanctification. Part of that sanctifying process is you walking with the Lord, abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, learning to obey him. And part of walking in Christ, abiding in Christ, we'll hear about that in John 15, part of that walking in Christ and abiding in Christ is your daily cleansing. A daily walk and a daily cleansing. Where I need to come to the Lord day by day as a believer and confess my sins. Not to be saved, but to be close. In other words, I had my bath. When I was 14 years old, I knelt beside my bed and I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart. And he gave me a bath. But now, every day since then, I need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I got some nasty feet. <laughs> I've been walking around in a dirty world and I said some things that I shouldn't have said and I thought some things I shouldn't have thought and I had an attitude I shouldn't have had and I didn't treat that person the way I should have treated them and Lord, I, I did this and I did this and I did this and it was wrong, it's conduct unbecoming and Lord, I'm sorry, would you cleanse me? I don't need a bath, but I need to get my feet cleansed so that I can stay close and right and abide in him. That's this illustration, isn't it? When Jesus said in verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Bathed there, in, in the Greek, it's a perfect participle. And a perfect participle speaks of an action that was completed in the past, but has effects in the present. So I had my bath, and it has effects to today. I'm not still getting a bath. No, it's already done. I've had my bath, and the, and the effects of the bath are still here, but now I need my feet cleansed. Justification, once and for all bath. Sanctification, that's your daily foot washing. <laughs> My daily cleansing. What a picture. That's the Christian life. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, this basic truth of Christian living is beautifully illustrated in the Old Testament priesthood. When the priest was consecrated, he was bathed all over. That's Exodus 29. And that experience was never repeated again. He only needed that consecrating bath once. However, during his daily ministry, he became defiled, so it was necessary that he wash his hands and feet at the brass laver in the courtyard, Exodus 30. Only then could he enter into the holy place and trim the lamps, eat the holy bread, or burn the incense. In other words, perform his duties as a priest. So we have here in the Lord's washing his disciples' feet, we have a loving demonstration, an expression of his love. He loved his own who were in the world to the uttermost. Secondly, we have this theological illustration, justification and sanctification, Thirdly, we have a practical example. A practical example. Look in verse 12. <clears throat> so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher, rabbi, and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, a pattern that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus said, I've given you an example. I've given you a pattern to follow. It's an example of an attitude. Not necessarily washing feet, especially in a foreign context where we don't wash our feet. We don't wash one another's feet. Different culture. But he has given us 
an attitude, not an external ritual to be followed, but an internal attitude that is to be followed, to mimic and duplicated. We're to have this spirit of humility, humble service. He's given us an example, humble service. We live in a culture that does not understand humility. It is a foreign concept. In fact, we live in a culture that despises humility. We live in a culture that celebrates arrogance, confidence. You know, someone who's real arrogant and confident, oh, he's a natural-born leader. No, he's just arrogant. (laughs) He's just a jerk. (laughs) He likes bossing people around. Oh, he's a natural-born leader. That's our culture. In the kingdom of heaven, though, humility is the mark of true greatness. Not arrogance, not confidence, but humility. In fact, let me just show you. Let's take, a, let's take a quick little tour. Go to Matthew chapter 18. I'll just show you several passages in quick succession, just one after another. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 4. Matthew 18, verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven. That's the playbook. That's how things work in God's kingdom. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Go to chapter 20, just a couple of chapters over. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John. Remember, John's our writer. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down, making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, oh yeah, we're able. (laughs) He said to them, well, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So you get the idea? So mama comes in, (laughs) good old mama. Lord, I want you to make my boys your executive VPs. I want, I, want, I want my boys to be your number one, number two guys. Give them a promotion. Set them high in the ladder. After hearing this, the ten, the other ten disciples, they became indignant with the two brothers. Oh, why didn't we think of that? You know, I should have called my mom. I played the mom card. Didn't even think about it. So now they're all mad. Remember, it's that whole pecking order. They're just worried about who's going to be more important than each other. But now listen to what Jesus says in this. Jesus called them to himself, says, guys, gather around. Let me tell you something. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. That's not the way we're going to play. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's our sovereign servant. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Chapter 23, move over just a couple more chapters. Chapter 23 and verse 11. Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the way of his kingdom. In 1 Peter 5, Peter tells men in the church, You young men in the church, you young men, you need to be subject to the older men in the church. Let the older men teach you and guide you and lead you. Younger men, 
Subject yourselves to the older men in the church. And then he says to the whole church, all of y'all. <laughs> Do you know he was from Tennessee? All y'all clothe yourselves with humility. I'm not just talking to the young men now. All y'all, young men, old men, young women, old women. All y'all clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's supposed to be the church. All y'all clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Let me show you one other passage. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. It's been said that John 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John 13 is a dramatization of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, we have the great Christological hymn. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 3. He says to a church, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Peter, all y'all clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Paul's saying the same thing. In the church, with humility regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. How about you think and act like Jesus? How did he think? How did he act? Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, knowing who he was and what he was. Knowing that all things were in his hands, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He loved those who were his own in the world to the uttermost. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 13 is a dramatization of Philippians 2. Jesus gives us a practical example. Philippians 2, here's a cosmic example. Here's our cosmic Christ. Here's what happened in the heavenlies. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. I mean, here's the cosmic interpretation of the gospel. But in John 13, here's a practical demonstration of that kind of humility, that emptying, knowing who he was and what he was, loving his disciples to the very end. He did the most remarkable, extraordinary, unexpected thing you could imagine. He dressed like a slave and acted like a slave and washed his disciples' feet giving us a practical example. Here's a pattern for you to follow. A pattern of humble ministry, humble service. Not looking up, not looking down, just looking around and meeting needs. Ministering to one another in the body of Christ. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger said this, Leadership is not about self-promotion. It's not about building our own platform, peddling our own wares, or recruiting others to serve our own agenda. It's about seizing upon existing real needs and rising to meet them even if it's inconvenient or causes us to get our hands dirty. That's real leadership. That's the sovereign servant. That's servant leadership. Well, one last thing. We've got to quit. Look in, look in verse 17. Jesus tells his disciples, again, this is a private meeting, closed doors, and after washing his disciples' feet, Jesus says to his disciples, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Notice the blessing of obedience. He doesn't say, blessed are you for knowing these things. No. <laughs> if you know these things and you do them, then you're blessed. And to be blessed is to experience God's, God's blessing, God's favor. To be fortunate, to be envied, um, to be happy. Blessed are you if you know these things and 
do them. That's the mark of God's kingdom, by the way. You do the will of the Father. Not just know the Father's will. You do the will of the Father. You keep His commandments. Blessed are you if you do these things. Jesus didn't just humbly wash their feet. He humbly died for His disciples. He loved them to the uttermost. My friend, He loved you to the uttermost too. He died for you on Calvary's cross. He died for your sins. He paid the penalty in your place. And he wants you to have eternal life. He died for you. He wants to save you. He wants you to be in his family. He wants you to have an inheritance with him. And now you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Say yes to the Lord Jesus. Have you been saved? Or let me put it this way. Have you had your bath? Have you had that once and for all head to toe cleansing? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? If not, or if you're not sure, if you have doubts, or if you have questions, today's the day. And I, I invite you to come. We're going to stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. Come to me and say, Preacher, I, I think I want to be saved, or I need Jesus, or I got questions, however you want to say it. We'd love to talk with you privately, pray with you if you'd like to, but you can leave here today having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the washing of regeneration, having your sins washed away, your sins forgiven, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, having been born into the family of God, Say yes to Jesus Christ. If you are saved, behold our Savior. And let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We need to think like Jesus and act like Jesus. We need to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another and follow his example. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving for us this event in the earthly life and ministry of Christ in the life of these disciples. Lord, we thank you for what this event says to us today, the truths that are conveyed in justification and sanctification, but especially humility and service, that the, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. No one's better or less than. No one's more than or less than. Well, Lord, we need you. And I pray that we would clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, that we would not do anything out of, out of selfish conceit, <laughs> but that we would look out for the needs of others, that we would be servant leaders like our sovereign servant. Seal this message to our hearts. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.